We trust our leadership at the local resorts. We trust that they can see the issues better than we can see them out of Denver and that we trust them by giving them the authority to act on the things they see on a daily basis. Uh, that's one of the opportunities for Jared, actually, is to get that a little more organized. I have a great propensity for enjoying chaos and anarchy, and I think the next five years should probably be a little more organized. Welcome to the storm. Your host, Stuart Winchester, got big changes underway at Altera. We are going to take a look at what that might mean for the future of one of North America's big ski passes. First, if you're new here, thank you and welcome. The podcast is a lot of fun, but it is just a small part of the storm. In order to get the full experience, you will want to visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter, where I am breaking down the world of lift serve skiing all year long. It's not an accident that this podcast dropped in June. That's just what the storm is. That's what I do. So please join me there and on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Okay, let's talk about my partner, Mountain Gazette. Have you subscribed yet? If not, why not? I'm telling you, having this thing on your coffee table is going to change your whole day. Mountain Gazette 197 is now shipping to subscribers, featuring an iconic cover shot by Academy Award winner Jimmy Chin. Mountain Gazette 197 is the biggest issue of the magazine ever at 140 pages. Inside, you'll find John Fahey's true crime Aspen Outlaw story, decades in the making. Ari Schneider's carefully reported piece on the fraught world of outdoor social media influencers, former bike editor Joe Parkins' love letter to two wheels, backcountry clashes in Teton National Park, stunning art and photography, and there's even a tear-out poster. The biggest issue of the biggest outdoor magazine ever. Go to mountaingazette.com to lock in your subscription today. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 92, Altera Mountain Company CEO Rusty Gregory. It's hard to imagine, but five years ago, there was no Altera Mountain Company and no Icon Pass. It was Vale and everyone else. But skiing's big time is a multiplayer game now, and it's going to stay that way. A big part of Altera's initial success is due to the leadership of Rusty Gregory, the company's CEO for the past four and a half years. Last month, Altera announced that Jared Smith, a product-focused executive who joined the company just last year, would take over as CEO on August 1st, and Rusty will move into a vice chairman of the board role. With Altera moving from bold idea to immovable fact of modern skiing, I thought it was a good time to catch up with the man who helped to launch and stabilize Altera and give us the Icon Pass as a true alternative or complement to Vale's Epic Pass. Let's go. My guest today is the CEO of Altera Mountain Company, which owns 15 ski resorts throughout North America. With Altera's Icon Pass, skiers can access 50 destinations in North America, Europe, South America, 
Australia, New Zealand, and Japan. Altera recently announced that he will step back from day-to-day operations and into a vice chairman of the board role on August 1st, making way for Jared Smith as Altera's next CEO. Prior to taking the top job at Altera in 2018, he spent decades at Mammoth Mountain, including 20 years as the head of the resort. He is a very good friend of the storm. Rusty Gregory is my guest. Rusty, welcome back. Always good to catch up. How are you doing today? I'm great, Stuart. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you again, and uh, I'm doing great. You know, I've got more time to ski on the horizon here soon, and uh, I'm, in a very, uh, I'm in very good spirits. That's what I like to hear, and I want to congratulate you, first of all, on appointing Jared Smith as the second CEO of the Altera Mountain Company. Now that you've had a few weeks to sit with that, how are you feeling about that transition? Listen, I feel uh, I feel great about it because I've had a lot more than the last few weeks to sit with it. This is uh, <laughs> I've been working on this for the last four years. Very accidental that I became uh, CEO of Altera. I was uh, you know one of the original few investors and and uh, on the board from the beginning, and uh, but had retired from Mammoth, and I was helping the company by running um, with another fellow the uh, the search for a CEO and. That led to me end up being CEO. Uh, that was all very accidental. And uh, so I've been working hard to get the right person in here. It's the right time for a transition. So I've had a lot more than a few weeks to think about it. And I'm, uh, I'm really excited for uh, Jared uh, to take the next step. And, you know, different times require different leadership. And he's the right leader going forward. Well, I definitely want to get into Jared and his challenges and what lays ahead for him. First though, let's just rewind. So you've been here as head of Altera for four and a half years. You took this job in January of 2018, or at least that's when Altera announced it. When you took this job, did you have a timeline in mind or did you have a set of goals? Was it, you wanted to launch the icon pass, you wanted to stabilize the company. What, what was, what was your mindset at the outset of this whole thing? And how has that changed and evolved over the years? Listen, I had none of those goals. I, uh, I didn't have a goal to get a job. <laughs> so the uh, the idea that I would have all that other stuff laid out, uh, that, w- that was definitely well beyond where I was. Um, uh, but I'm, uh, it was really helping the company out. I was an investor and I love the people in the industry and the industry itself. So I was helping them uh, do some of their initial strategic planning and I should say, by the way, that there was actually a, a uh, an interim CEO before me, a great guy named Brian mm-hmm. Traficanti, who's head of, uh, of uh, asset management for KSL, but he was a bit male. He's a passionate skier and bluegrass musician, and he was the uh, the stand-in interim CEO for a few months before uh, I started, and uh, he was uh, in when things were, were really disorganized and did a great job. I just want to shout out to him a little bit. Mm-hmm. So you came in and I think the consensus is around the industry, Rusty, that you've absolutely crushed it in establishing Altera, establishing the Icon Pass. If you go back to that time and and I think no one really knew what to expect, but what did you think, how did you think Altera and the Icon Pass would evolve and how different was that vision from what actually happened or that expectation, I should say? 
Well, I, you know, I think that the vision, um, once I was able to collect myself, moved to Denver, <laughs> realized, oh my God, I'm, I'm working again. Uh, and when I uh, adapted to all of that, the, you know, the, really the, the first vision, honestly, was to do no harm. You know, the, uh, our initial resorts, you know, Mammoth, et cetera, Mammoth, the, uh, the Interwest Resorts, Winter Park, you know, et cetera, et cetera, our initial resorts, those were, uh, those were great resorts that have been running a long time successfully, run by great people that really knew their business well. And so the first uh, order of business was to do no harm, was to not um, destroy value with the idea of, hey, we're now one big company and corporate headquarters, and we're going to start imposing sort of the... Uh, you know, corporate will on all these well-run resorts. So the first thing was to really just free up the individual resorts to help them continue doing what they were already doing a great job of. So the Icon Pass has evolved quite a bit since you launched it in winter of 2018. It's been a home run from day one. But going back, I, you know, there's always a risk that anything could flop. How nervous were you when you launched the Icon Pass? Hi, listen, I was incredibly nervous. I mean, my, you're the one that knows all the facts, the dates better than I do, frankly. And uh, <laughs> my recollection was at the outdoor ski show. And uh, I remember because I was in the audience and Rob Katz was giving a speech and the icon was announcing. And, and, uh, and I was worried that, uh, that people wouldn't even notice. Mm. <laughs> no idea how well it was going to, uh, to work, but we had high... Uh, I aspirations. Uh, a lot of people. I played, frankly, a very minor role in the uh, the intelligence behind the strategy, the Icon Pass. This is something that had been developing from the early days of, uh, of the company in the, in the beginning months and actually before the company was formed. Although it was based on a concept that I was very familiar with because of the Epic Pass, because of uh, the what was called the MVP Pass in Mammoth in the late 90s. And all this goes back to Mike Shirley at Bogus Basin, who kind of came up with these, the idea of an inexpensive pre-bought pass the season before. So the concept had been out there for a long time, but for our particular approach to it, I was very nervous. And uh, But the facts are that it, uh, it sold unbelievably well from the very beginning and it gave people a license to travel. It gave customers... Um, not just the company, but customers, a weather hedge, because somewhere in the network, they had a chance for a great skiing, as long as they were willing to uh, drive or travel a little bit. And uh, it's, it's been incredibly gratifying and really has succeeded beyond all of our expectations. So take us into the back room in those early days, put it out online and folks could buy the Icon Pass in spring of 2018. Was there a moment when you knew this thing was going to be a hit, did you see the first day of sales? What what was that sort of okay sigh of relief that this is going to work? Well, there were, there was a lot of sighs of relief, but there was mostly gasps of panic on my part, anyway. uh, because there was a lot of people, very smart people. Uh, Eric Forsell, our head of marketing, uh, his teams, and others. Uh, Adam Knox, who's actually our CFO now, people that put all this stuff together. And the, the first thing was, are we going to get any partners? And, you know, the partners were in question right up until the last minute. And then we had the right partners. We really didn't know that was going to happen. 
And then, uh, then it was, is anybody going to buy it? I mean, it was, it was like, oh my God, they're actually buying it. But the, the real, the real aha, unbelievable moment for me, and I think other people in the company would say something similar, is actually when winter came and people took their icon passes and they were able to get on the ski lift through the gates and the passes worked mostly and people were able to go skiing and they had a blast. It was, it was literally that the, it was literally that the passes themselves worked with all the different high tech and low tech, you know, uh, entry systems that we had across the network. And when that worked successfully, that was a, uh, that was really the defining moment for me that, my gosh, we sold a bunch of them. These people are actually out having fun. It works. We must be heading in a good direction. That notion of direct to lift with all the different RFID systems you have out there. I mean, that is amazing. I mean, I take that thing and zoom right through the gates at Alta, which you don't own, or Snowbird, which you don't own, uh, or Wyndham, and, or Stratton or Sugarbush, which you do own, or Killington. And, and it just is so seamless and always has been when you think back on this and, and it's been four and a half years, which sounds like about four and a half years longer than you wanted to have this job, but nonetheless, you've been here, you have a legacy. What are you most proud of Rusty? When you think back on what Altera has become, what the icon pass has become in the last four and a half years. You know, honestly, the, the thing that I'm the most proud of is a little less those achievements and uh, what I'm the most proud of is really the people behind those achievements. And I say this very sincerely. The, uh, the, the, this group of people that didn't know each other, that got together, that were from cultures that were all different from these resorts, and uh, that got together, put their ideas uh, out on the table, argued about them, developed a common view of what the opportunity was and how to go about that, supporting one another um, with a lot of pressure and producing together some really innovative things. Um, and since then have been uh, continuing to innovate, change, disrupt ourselves in those products. And so it's really the people that did that work and, uh, and that made for way, the way for the people that then enjoyed the uh, the work that they had done by going out and skiing at the resorts. I'm, I'm incredibly proud of the culture that all those people acting together with a common kind of vision that, uh, that we developed over time. I, I'm proud of that. Uh, really, the, really about the, uh, you know, the results that those people created um, that is now, you know, the continued experiment about Terra Mountain Company. Then the collective efforts of those folks, Rusty, have changed the ski industry. And and you've described yourself to me on this podcast in the past as, quote, an old ski guy, unquote. And the way I interpret that is you've seen everything, right? Decades at Mammoth Mountain. And and that's a big, important resort. And, and you've seen every sort of circumstance and weather challenge that you could think of in the ski industry. As you think back on that day when you were watching Rob Katz and you were about to launch the Icon Pass, how do you think that the Icon Pass has changed the North American ski industry? And it, you know, obviously it created a second big pass and, and inspired all kinds of other things. But when, when you think back and, and look at the landscape and how different it is from five years ago, 
what it, what was the impact the Icon Pass had there? Well, I think that it uh, one of the most obvious ones was that very competitive industry and Vail had created a powerhouse, an incredibly successful powerhouse, and they had some real competitive advantage because they offered such great value, such a great variety of resorts, and it um, it was compelling for people to put their differences aside and to join forces just so we could all survive. And it's, it's a, you know, it's a great American story, right? Which is that competition creates innovation that benefits people. And that was certainly true with the icon pass. So there was a tremendous effort with the, uh, with the skiing and riding guest in mind to come up with a, with an approach to a bunch of different disparate ski resorts owned by different people in different regions to, to come together behind something that was common enough that we could actually go out and compete with Vail for. That was the original idea, at least from my perspective. And then it went way beyond that to, boy, if we can do that, imagine how much better we can do it. And uh, it's less now about, you know, competing with anybody in particular. It's more about, okay, now what do our guests want? And how do we give it to them? And that, you know, that's that still really drives drives us the passion. And not that we get it right every time, but we're uh, but it certainly gets us to the office, or at least gets us to our Zoom calls every day. And uh, there's a lot of effort being put into that now, and that passion is still there. And uh, it's been great to be part of that. Yeah, the Icon Pass has certainly rearranged an industry that was dominated by one player and really made it a true competition. And it, it seems obvious and it's, it's worked out really well, but it took 10 years, right? From the launch of the Epic Pass to the launch of the Icon Pass, which was the first product that truly matched up mountain for mountain with the Epic Pass. It wasn't easy is my point. So if you look back, let's set COVID aside for a moment here. Look, Pat, look, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Look at the last four and a half years. What was the biggest challenge you face, Rusty, in growing Altera and the Icon Pass into a true competitor for Epic and Vale? Well, I think the uh, there was a lot of challenges, uh, and they were all daunting, and but we kind of dealt with it one at a time and didn't know how impossible what we were trying to do really was. But the, I think the biggest one was just convincing ourselves and convincing partners that this was a good idea, and that we could, despite our competitive nature, come together uh, uh, and uh, around Icon Pass partnerships and develop a, uh, you know, a collective effort without having to uh, create one company to organize it all, right? We, uh, we, were, we were separately owned for the most part, so it was really the partner model. And that, that, was, the, that was really pivotal that we were able to attract more people to the partnership and... Uh, I think that that is the unique thing about the the Icon Pass. I think is is that big group of people that are so different that have such different great mountains that somehow they were able we were all able to pull it together and create a cohesive effort behind the Icon Pass. That was the uh, to me that was one of the that's the most amazing thing. Yeah, when you talk about your network of partners, it's a very interesting group. So you have big resorts that are standalone entities like Jackson Hole or Taos or Alta. And that's just one mountain and one group of people you have to deal with. 
Then you have big partners like Boeing and Powder, which themselves are not actually that much smaller than Altera. Over time, has it become easier to keep that coalition together or or more difficult? In other words, have people seen, okay, this really works, let's do this? Or have they said, wait a minute, why are we letting Altera lead this? Maybe you know, Boeing or Powder could lead their own pass. As you go through time, how has that d- dynamic evolved? You know, it is, uh, I think that it's very similar. I think that we, and I don't mean just Altera, but we, Altera, uh, and we are partners. Every year we have to do, we have to make the effort to stay together. And it's not like there's big arguments going on, right? But the, you know, gee, we've done this for a while. Maybe there's another way to do it. I, I, I particularly am sympathetic to this, having worked for Dave McCoy for so many years at Mammoth. Mammoth, which is sort of out there in California. Nobody thinks about it except for the, I don't know, 30 million Californians, I guess. <laughs> and so we were like huge, but, you know, we weren't on anybody's map in Colorado or in Utah for the most part, right? Mm-hmm. And... Um, and Dave McCoy, he was a radically idiosyncratic individualist. He, was, he wasn't a joiner. He never went where the crowd went. He always went on his own line. Uh, he was humble, loved people, but um, didn't find any particular passion for groups. So we didn't join anything. Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't join, I didn't join YPO when I became a president because, you know, that was sort of uncool based on mammoth culture. And a lot of that in the ski industry in general and in our friends and our partners, you know, they're in the ski business because they want to do it their way. And you can see that in Jackson and you can see that in Big Sky and you can see it in the smallest of resorts that we have. These are, these are individual expressions of the passions and talents of the leaders behind those groups. They're not joiners either. So the idea that we would all sort of come together and join behind a collective effort, that's, a, uh, that's almost a contradiction in terms. And that's been really interesting to be part of. And it's uh, kind of a wonder to watch every year. You know, five years in, Rusty, Icon has not lost a single coalition member, it, despite all of those challenges that you just articulated. How important is that to you? And what does that say about the success of the Icon Pass as a product? Well, I'll tell you, it's like the most important thing to me. And, uh, you know, there's, I, there's no points in life for losing friends. <laughs> and, I, and I think of our, and I mean this, I think of our partners as friends. I mean, I know these people and, have, you know, most of them I've known for a long time. And, uh, you know, part of how you keep friends, this may not sound like the smartest business maneuver, but, you know, you, you need to be willing to subordinate your self-interest for your friends and for your friendships. And countless times that has faced not just Altera, but also our member resorts. And to make things work, somebody has had to say, you know, I'm not sure I agree with that. I'm not sure that that's good for me. But if it's good for you, my partner, my friend, that's good enough for me this year. Remember, though, next year that I did it this year. <laughs> And that and that's really created a lot of glue that's held all this stuff together. That and we've together collectively with our partners uh, and with the smart people at Altera that are behind all this, um, working every day to make it happen. That um, you know we found better ways to do it each year, and uh, you know it, it's worked out incredibly well. 
the Icon Pass every year has made just very slight access changes to certain mountains. And some of the most significant were involved the introduction of the Icon Base Plus Pass, right? So for the first two seasons, you had Aspen and Jackson Hole on the Icon Base Pass in starting in the 2020 to 21 ski season, a skier would have to pay the add-on. It was $100. Now it's $200 to get those five days at Jackson and Aspen on their Icon Base Pass. And of course, they were still included on the uh, on the full pass. How important was that adjustment, for example, in keeping together, as you said, like a very independent-minded set of people and, and just to have that option in place, how important was that? You know, it was important less because of the, uh, of the change itself, you know, the base, the base plus pass and less important of that specific construct. What was important was there were people trying to achieve different ends and that the base plus um, allowed us to achieve that. We sort of uh, collectively invented that. And that's a good example of, because some people, um, frankly, you know, it's a little bit inside baseball, but, you know, frankly, Altera wasn't really keen on complicating the offering by offering more, but our partners felt very strongly about it. And it was one of many examples of, okay, listen, if, if it's that important to you, we'll do it. And, um, there's been large and small examples of that since, but that that was really so. It was less the product itself that did anything magical. What it what that product allowed was for us to deal some for dealing people that were trying to increase yield, uh, for others that were trying to uh, avoid becoming too crowded, and. Uh, and so far that it's worked well enough so that people that wanted to make that change have felt good about the change that was made. And so it was more of the human dynamics of agreeing to it than it was the product itself that really was the important achievement and change that, uh, that took place. Did those resorts give you an ultimatum? Did they say, look, if you can't accommodate this, we are going to have to leave? No, you know, I don't think that that's actually happened. You know, there's been arguments, right, about, you know, I'm going to be in your powder line every morning unless you unless you agree to this, that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, there's been heated discussions and, uh, you know, I don't want to I don't want to make it more emotional than it is. But, you know, like among family members and uh, there's nothing more, nothing more emotional and uh, uh exciting sometimes than arguing with a family member. And uh, so we've certainly had those kind of arguments around. And, uh, but I don't, I don't recall anybody saying, listen, that's it. If you don't do it, we're out. And part of the reason for that is I think that nobody ever wanted to push it that far. Again, you know, I don't want to overstate this, but there's a lot of friendships around that table. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you've got friends, you, you shouldn't have to push each other that hard. You should see it coming. And, agree to go along sometime and, and uh, not just Altera, but across the uh, partner relationship network, um, you know, most, most have made concessions along the way to make everything work. Yeah, there's been a lot of changes over the years and, and we'll get into more detail later about some of the changes coming for the 2022 to 23 Icon Pass suite. I do want to finish up 
here or talking about the last four and a half years in, in your legacy and your tenure here as CEO and go back to COVID. I mean, just, I would imagine this is part of the reason why you ended up being here for four and a half years was just, you know, it took half that time to, to even begin dealing with COVID. So how much did that change the trajectory of not just Altera and the Icon Pass, but of the entire ski industry, Rusty? Well, I think, you know, it changed the, changed the world, right? You know, we as a, uh, we as a global culture, you know, came once again into, uh, into close contact with our vulnerabilities and, uh, and realized that as much as we think that we know what's going on, something completely, um, you know, out of the, out of left field come and changes, change our lives. Our lives could change for us. And um, it, it certainly was that way in the ski industry itself, and it was certainly that way at Altera. You know, I, I remember on that, what was March 14th, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right that day, and, I, and there were discussions going on with board members and with other, uh, you know, executives and owners in the ski industry and and it was about doing the right thing for our people. And, oh, my God, if we do the right thing with our people, we're going to go out of business. And so this big company that we cobbled together and had only been around for a few years, you know, the decision um, to close down the whole company, that was the uh, that was the most I was I was more frightened of that decision than any other decision I'd made in my life. I didn't, I couldn't get a hold of all the board members. It wasn't like there was some great, uh, I mean, there would have been support, but you couldn't get a hold of everybody. And so it was a decision that I made somewhat unilaterally because I thought it was the right thing for our people. Other executives came to the same conclusion, you know, they rub cats on the same day, right? And, uh, and then we were particularly having issues. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm displaying my PTSD now. I think uh, particularly had issues. You may remember that there was a big outbreak up in the Washington area, yep. And uh, at a that had stemmed from a, I think a, a senior citizen's home, and there was a ter- there were terrible outbreak, some deaths, as I recall. And so it was a, he was really affecting things there, and it dawned on me that. You know, if, if it's happening here, this isn't a resort by resort thing. If this is a risk and we know of this risk and that it's coming, it would be irresponsible not to close everything down to uh, to help people avoid the risk. That's what we decided to do. And that was an incredibly difficult decision. So that was the start of all of this. And, um, and then during the pandemic, I mean, all, everybody has their pandemic stories. That for me, the biggest thing, and I think it was industry-wide, frankly, um, and that is that people were faced with the impossible. First of all, it was impossible that in the busiest, most important business month of the year, March, that's when the snow's there, weather's usually good enough, you can maximize crowds, to close everything in the middle of that, that that's impossible. How do you how do you deal with that? Right. And what was remind what where we were re, what we're reminded of is that is that the we can do the impossible, and the the ski industry has a certain sort of cultural element to it 
that attracts people that like it when they don't know what the what's the surprise tomorrow what what surprise this tomorrow is going to bring. These are people that like that kind of thing, sick-minded people that think that that's a <laughs> like me that thinks that that's a fun life to live. But that predisposition was um, that was essential to be able to deal with the impossible circumstances. Oh my God, we're closed. What do we do about all our employees? If we lay them off, how do we get them back? How do we take care of them when we don't have the money coming in? And we may not for years have the money coming in to deal with that. So that stretched everybody to the limit. But that led to things like, oh, my God, people, now we're back open. It's the next year. We don't have enough employees here. We can't let our people inside, our customers inside. But they're hungry. How do they order food? How do they pick up food? This is just one of scores of examples. What? Let's use a QR code. Let's let them order from the lift. This, by the way, had been talked about for a decade or more. But the answer, the operator's answer, be included was, "Oh, you know, the batteries on a cold day, it won't work. <laughs> this will happen. Yeah. That'll happen." And circumstances forced us to try to overcome that those impossibilities, and it worked. So we did that. And then all of a sudden you could, you could pick up your ticket without having to go to a booth, do everything on a advanced sales basis and countless innovations occurred and were uh, perfected literally within a few months that the industry had been talking about for a decade or more that it took the emergency of the pandemic to get us to try it. And, uh, and that was a revolutionary change in the industry. Boy, we can do that. We can take on those things and do it differently. And uh, I, to me, that was, that was the big lesson of the pandemic. In addition to just that rapid upgrade of the technology infrastructure and, and just a, a reinvention of the whole ski day experience, COVID ended up being a tremendous growth catalyst, which no one necessarily expected, right? We were so traumatized by the moment that it made us second guess everything coming in the future, but it ended up being uh, maybe the best thing to happen to skiing in decades as far as getting people to go skiing. And the NSAA, the National Skiers Association, said that the industry just recorded a record season with 61 million visits for 2021 to 22. Do you think that that participation burst is is going to be permanent. Are you seeing signs that 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 this outdoor boom that COVID causes people couldn't do things like go to the movies? That there's momentum there. That that's a catalyst that will carry forward into the future. There is definitely momentum, but there is no permanency to it. I you know, everything is ephemeral, and uh, you watch. You know, once if the industry starts acting like it's permanent then the next big shoe will drop, which will be some catastrophe that none of us can contemplate at this point. This is an ever-changing industry that we have to be willing to disrupt ourselves before the circumstances disrupt us. I don't mean just Altera, but the industry itself. And uh, so I do think, though, it is that the, I mean, I don't want to say that the pandemic was great for the industry. It was, it was terrible for the world. But the reaction of the industry to the pandemic has been uh, has been quite positive in terms of people wanting to go out and have fun again and get outside where it's healthy. 
you know, if you were in the golf business or in the ski business, you were uh, one of the lucky ones in the pandemic uh, in terms of the way that it played out. And uh, but, you know, now we just need to take that same innovation that, and that same willingness to take a risk to do things better. Um, we need to keep that feeling with us. And without the catalyst of the you know, worldwide global emergency driving it, just our own uh, desire to do things better for our guests, better for our employees, better for our small communities, and having the, uh, having the, taking the initiative to, to risk it again without being forced to do it. Um, I think that that's going to be the, that'll be, uh, that'll, that'll distinguish the real successful companies going forward and the less successful companies going forward as we, distance ourselves from the pandemic. Well, whatever happens next, whatever that next big surprise is, it's not going to be your problem unless it happens in the next five to six weeks. Jared Smith will be taking over as the Altera CEO on August 1st. And I realize you still have a chairman role, but why, just take us into this, why was Jared Smith the right choice to be Altera's next CEO? It was, the, uh, it was a year long recruiting process. And I and another uh, fellow met, were part of the this process interviewing people and uh, met some of the most accomplished CEOs and qualified to be CEO type candidates that uh, that I ever ever have. And uh, you know, Jared, for me, was head and shoulders above the others because first his passion for skiing. He happened to live in Manhattan Beach and. Uh, he happened to ski in Mammoth, and his description of the value of skiing for his family and himself um, and uh, how passionate he was about it was the first thing that attracted me to him. And, and then the others were the fact that he had run a very sophisticated company during a, uh, a time of tremendous change. And it's what, they, what Ticketmaster went through um, over his... 17-year career, I think, uh, you know, in my simple terms, it was that they, you know, they basically went from paper ticket scalpers to some of the most sophisticated plat technology platforms for fulfillment and for uh, guest databases um, of anybody in the country. And Jared was there experiencing all of that and towards the... Uh, middle to the end of his career at uh, Ticketmaster, he was driving that change. And that's exactly the kind of change that the ski industry, at least Altera, needs to go through next. So he's the, uh, the right leader at the right time with the right talent for the opportunity that Altera has in the five years and beyond going forward. Um, and he's the, he's the right person for the company. Next step. What are those challenges, Rusty, as you look at the Icon Pass, you look at Altera Mountain Company, how do they need to evolve? What are Jared's big challenges? And, and maybe this is his story to tell, but but from your seat, what, because it, it like you said, it's already a, a fairly sophisticated technology product, the Icon Pass. It works everywhere. It works seamlessly. Uh, you have a very good marketing team and online presence. What, what, what where does he need to take this thing? Well, I, first of all, he's going to figure that out, and you will enjoy interviewing him when, <laughs> uh, when he's available after, after August 1. Uh, he's got a lot, of, a lot of great ideas. 
the first thing is just the whole paradigm of the icon pass, right? Our strengths, if overplayed, become our weakness. So if we're so focused on the icon pass the way that it is, we want to make sure we're not so focused on preserving the way that it is because it's so valuable that we miss what it needs to become in the future. And uh, so what we need to be thinking about, about is a little less about what we're doing today and what we might need to be doing in the future, what we could be doing in the future. If we took a risk, what if we did it completely the opposite and you know, came up with a whole different approach? And the willingness to consider that uh, and then be able to think about it objectively, he has that kind of talent background and has gone through that kind of, uh, that kind of visionary uh, um, innovation and change management. And that's very important. If, and if you look at the ski industry, as much as I love the industry, you know, pretty fundamental that when you're looking, I'm, you know, giving one of a million examples, you know, when you're going into a place and there's a lot of people competing for the same parking places, you got to be able to look on your phone and see where the parking places, the vacant parking places are. Every, you know, Every uh, half-abandoned mall in the U.S. has that capability, but ski resorts don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you drive in, it's a mile from the entrance to the lot to wherever the parking uh, spaces may be. You have no idea. you got to drive the whole mile, take the risk that you're going to miss ski school start time because you don't know where their parking places are. So that's pretty fundamental, and we in the ski industry, for the most part, don't do that. We need to get our act together and do the do, do those things differently. You disrupt ourselves. Another example, in the age of Uber, not just Uber, right? You're sitting wherever you're sitting, and basically whatever you want, you can order it and have it delivered to you where you're sitting. But we still make people go to where ski school lines up. <laughs> we need people have to show up at ski school at a certain time. You know, people need to be, you know, they're in a bump run and they want to learn how to ski bumps better. They should be able to requisition a, uh, a ski professional to help them down the run that they're on. And uh, because they have that expectation that comes from their real life. But when they go skiing, they don't have any of those kind of conveniences. And, you know, we as an industry, and maybe a better way to put this, the companies that will be successful going forward are the ones that are actually going to go out and fix those kind of problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, all, of, all of the things that you just said are things that skiing absolutely should address. And if I look back at Vale and Altera and a bunch of other companies over the past 10 to 15 years, you've collectively broken some things that absolutely needed to be broken. I, I, I am always concerned about an overzealous application of that mindset to things that are working quite well. And, and I think the assurance that skiers are looking for is that Jared Smith is someone who understands the culture of skiing. And what I mean by that is you, Rusty Gregory, no one had to tell you why you would keep Mammoth Mountain open till 4th of July. Right or why Palisades Tahoe should be open until August, or why Deer Valley should not be unlimited on the Icon Pass. Those things could have been broken, but they haven't been because they're they're important in a way that transcends maybe the basic bottom line or or whatever your accountant may tell you. Right, these are sort of fundamental about how people feel about and connect with skiing. So, 
does he understand that part of skiing? I realize you can't really speak for him, but but being part of the selection committee, I'm I'm sure you drilled him on this. Does he understand that piece of it? And what advice have you given him about making sure that that he does doesn't destroy the integrity of that cultural bit of it? You know, we've had a lot of conversations about it. I he may have a different <laughs> A different view, but my my view is that I really haven't given him advice on that. We've just had conversations about it, and uh, you know he's got a uh, a point of view that comes from his life experience. You know, this is I don't want to get too overly philosophical or socially topical here, right? But you know, there's a lot of talk about diversity, and uh, and certainly a big part of that is people of color and different persuasions being welcomed and embraced in all communities. And uh, but the strength behind that, the reason that that's such a rational, um, it's a it's a moral, uh, the right moral direction, but it's also the right business direction is that through different life experiences and uh, the different perspectives that come with that, you have a di- the people have a different point of view on opportunities, on threats, on things that can be innovated. So it's a little less, you know, the embodiment of all of that in the form of one CEO. It's more about, you know, the ingredients of the soup and Jared's experience outside the ski industry, his experience that's relevant, but not exactly the same as the challenges that we face in the ski industry um, that he was familiar with at, uh, at Ticketmaster. That diversity that he brings to the table, that life experience, that he's not just another me, thank God, right? That, but that he's somebody that's unique to the business. He brings a completely new perspective. And it's not a matter of that being now the company's perspective. It's a matter of that perspective now being at the table. And what a great company needs to do is one that is focused on its people, its guests, its employees, local communities. And with that in mind, then takes those, the variety of perspectives passionately held and strongly advocated around the table. And you come up with a common approach to the opportunities and threats. And, uh, and it's that process that allows you to disrupt yourself, to do innovative things, to be smart enough not to break things that aren't broken, to make decisions. It's the, it's the never-ending search for balance. A great skier, you know, a good skier, right, is constantly moving. It's not about leaning forward. It's not about leaning back. It's about trying to balance by changing all the time. And an organization has to have that same set of dynamics. And Jared adds the right perspective at the right time for the opportunities and some of the threats that are faced by Altera. I think, uh, I think that that's what makes him the right person for the job. Well, I will look forward to seeing Jared's perspective and getting to know him and seeing how he guides the company into the future. Let's shift gears here, Rusty. Let's talk about the 2021 to 22 ski season. It was, as I mentioned, a record ski season by skier visits. How did the 2021 to 22 ski season go for Altera Mountain Company? Well, it's, you know, really like every year, and I mean this, uh, even during the pandemic, of course, the expectations were dramatically lower, starting with the fact that we were closed for, you know, part of that season. 
Right. Um, but the answer is that, you know, we dramatically exceeded our expectations in really every, in every metric and uh, kind of for the fifth year in a row. So we've, uh, we're flying at an altitude much higher than we should have reasonably expected to be flying at. And I think that that's been very fortunate for us. And uh, it's the result of a lot of hard work by individuals in the company. And frankly, um, you know, uh, a result of some, uh, some good fortune as well. So we're, we're doing unbelievably well. I think it's important to note that, you know, we talk about the, oh my gosh, we did 61, what was the final number? 61.5 or something? Yeah. Right? And, and we were doing so much in the, in, the, uh, in the ski business. The facts are that that's not materially different than what we were doing 20 years ago, right? In terms of uh, maybe it's, it's more accurately measured now. It is a good sign that we had the biggest year ever, but we had the biggest year by, what, 500,000 skier visits? And uh, so it's not exactly exploding business growth. So it's, it's still challenging, very competitive, and something that the leaders of the industry, you know, even the old ones like me, need to continually think about, which is, you know, how do we, how do we grow the lifestyle in this sport? How do we get more people involved in it? Diversity is part of that. So challenges are still ahead, despite how successful Altera was this last year and despite how successful the industry itself was. Those record skier numbers, Rusty, came amid, in spite of rather, some significant staffing challenges across the country. Curious how those challenges affected Altera and your network of 15 owned resorts. You know, it, uh, we're, we're no different, right? Um, that from the rest of the industry, from all of the things that Vale struggled with and, uh, you know, uh, we're talked about all the time in social media, we were all experiencing our own versions of that. And, you know, the whole great resignation and the fact that uh, employees were just not available, um, that was a huge challenge for us. And there was a lot of effort made. We had no secret formula to how to approach that. Um, other than maybe the our belief, and this is not a comment about how anybody else runs their business. It's just what we think is a cultural um, kind of pillar and strong element of the foundation of Altera. And that is that we, we trust our leadership at the local resorts. We trust that they can see the issues better than we can see them out of Denver. And that we trust them by giving them the authority to act on the things they see on a daily basis. And uh, there's not a lot of process that gets in the way of that. Uh, that's one of the opportunities for Jared, actually, is to get that a little more organized. I have a, <laughs> I have a great uh, propensity for enjoying uh, kind of chaos and anarchy. And I think <laughs> the next five years should probably be a little more organized. But for the first five years, at least in my mind, it was the right way to approach it, right? It's like the bike going downhill without a rider on it. It's already, it's upright, it's moving, it's generally headed in the right direction. There's no sense stopping it you know, getting it aimed perfectly and then figuring out how to overcome inertia again, it's better to just kind of tweak it as you go along. And you've got to have some comfort and confidence in, uh, uh, in chaos to be able to do that. I think we can get a lot more organized going forward, but uh, I think that that was a good attribute for the company uh, in the beginning. 
you know, my favorite manifestation of that, Rusty, is that your resorts seem to pick their own closing dates. And the long season is just one of the, I think, most joyous parts of the sport. And I think it's a real downer when someone closes up shop and they have 200 inches of base on the on the hill and they keep getting storms. So Crystal Mountain was open. I think they just closed two weekends ago. Uh, the, the The piece of it that I think may have had more effect last season when you look at staffing is just when you look at wages and Vail, for example, in the lower Midwest really struggled. They would not give that, they wouldn't delegate that permission to their local managers to raise wages. They were stuck at 11, 25 an hour or something, just couldn't bring the people on. So they responded by cutting hours instead. What Vail's doing next year is they decided for an across the board, $20 an hour minimum wage. Curious about your response to that and also how Altera's approach varies. Do you plan on matching that? Or is that call on wages up to local managers? What, what are your whole thoughts on that on that wage dynamic and, and how you assign that across the country? I, I honestly don't really have a comment on it with Vail, and I'm not trying to avoid the circumstance. They, they run a great company, and uh, they've got a lot of challenges that are, that are similar to ours in other parts of the industry in some ways and unique to them in other ways. Um, it's true that our approach to it was to back our local ski resort presidents and their team to figure it out and give them the resources to do it. That's not to say that that was done blindly. It was a lot of conversations. And as my uh, earlier statement indicated, right, we were trying to together achieve some balance. And we did have discussions about... Uh, gosh, maybe we should do, you know, a minimum pay of a certain level across the whole company. And then all of a sudden we'd look at, I don't know what, the Palisade market in California or Mammoth. And then we'd look at Snowshoe, West Virginia. And I'll tell you, the needs there are very different at one end of the country compared to the other. So we never, you know, did something across the board other than supported our local decision makers across the board to do the wild, unique things that they did to keep as much labor working as possible. And that was spot bonuses, um, retention bonuses, you know, big raises, um, lots of different innovative things that were different at each resort. It was like Adam Smith's invisible hand working across the company. And, and it worked uh, pretty well, all things, uh, all things considered. Um, that was our approach to the past and it worked pretty well for us. So we're not trying to match what Vale did in any particular way, other than the fact that they run a great company and, uh, but we, but they're part of the market. And when they raise wages and we're in the same competitive markets, we better be thinking of doing that much, not more. I'd like to think that we do it first because we should be trying to do that. We should be trying to take care of our people. I'll make one last comment on it is that the, uh, the, really the equation um, between capital and labor is changing, and uh, it should. For 30 or more years, more and more money, more and more the benefit of people's labor has gone to capital. And there's incredibly wealthy, and I'm a free market conservative capitalist, and uh, I'll, I'll skip my politics because nobody cares, but I'm no fan of Trump's, just to, to be clear. <laughs> but, I, 
but I, you know, but I'm conservative and, and, uh, and I think that, uh, people should have choices about what they want to do. And then, you know, having the man tell them that is, you know, that's not my idea of where the, where the country or companies ought to go. And, uh, but there's a change now in the proposition of how to divide up the spoils of, uh, achievement. And we're going to see more, we're already seeing significantly more money head towards people doing the work on the front lines. And there's more of that to come. And I think that the companies that don't understand that are going to suffer the consequences of, uh, of not paying attention. And those that embrace that, find a way to pay their people more, find a way to take care, better care of them. Start with that as the goal, not the... Uh, not some, you know, just kind of business uh, algorithm, algorithmic approach. I think that that's changing, and um, and we in the industry and we at Altera intend to be in the lead on that. So, you know, that means higher levels of pay, higher levels of benefit, greater flexibility as to where people work. You know, lift operators and ski patrollers, they probably are going to have to stay on the mountain. I don't see any uh, way around that. They wouldn't have it any other way, of course, right? But we we need to be more flexible, and the world is changing. And uh, my view is, thank God it is. <laughs> well, we've talked about the market before, and it's you know you made a statement to me last year that the market would tell you if Icon passes weren't priced correctly after Vail made their big price cut, they dropped prices twenty percent, of course, for the twenty twenty one to twenty two ski season. Uh, Vail's sold one point two million Epic passes last year on its earnings call earlier this month. They announced that sales were up 9% in units sold and 11% in sales dollars for 2022 to 23. You raised Epic Pass prices quite a bit this past year. So I imagine the market told you you're doing all right. I realize you're not going to tell me any sales numbers, but how would you characterize Icon Pass sales, not only so far this season, but also last year in the face of Vail's big price cut? Well, in the face of, I guess, Vail's price cut, but in the face of all the other things that go that went on as well, because there's all sorts of other market inputs, right, is that, you know, last year and this year that our results dramatically exceeded any expectation we had. Uh, it actually dramatically exceeded any hopes we had. <laughs> and, uh, and it, you know, um, so that's the market telling us stuff. And... Uh, so, you know, and that, that changes the challenge, right? You pointed it out on a number of your podcasts and have talked to people about it. And that is, you know, what do we do when things get too crowded? At the end of the day, people will only pay for a good experience. They'll only ret return consistently to a great experience. Having too many people on the mountain at one time is not a great experience. So uh, there's no easy way to achieve that. It's not as simple as you know, raising price to some level or reservations or, you know, it's a lot of different things. But at the end of the day, the, the, the resorts, the companies that stay maniacally guest experience focused, over time, they will do the best. They need to be able to kind of risk and make changes. And a good example of that I know you're aware of is you know, we're doing lots of wild things up at Crystal Mountain because we've got so much demand and just very little capacity. In the Northwest in general and in Crystal specifically relative to demand, we've been trying to deal with that by, 
by bringing more content on, you know, Schweitzer and, and uh, Sun Valley and other places within ICON that the Northwest can conveniently get to. But, you know, crowding is a big issue. And, uh, you know, people say it's a high quality problem, but anything that degrades the guest experience is a big problem. And we're going to have to figure out a way to uh, to deal with that. And they they took some pretty wild stabs at it in terms of pricing changes up at Crystal. And, <laughs> and it's caused a lot of uh, Frank DeBerry, one of the nicest guys I know, is on the front line of a lot of negative reactions to some quarters of the market that are saying, oh, my God, you're gouging me. And, and of course, Frank's saying, well, but we've only got so much room and we've got to allocate it somehow. And, you know, that's the uh, that's the challenge of being a leader in the front line in these small communities. And all you can do is is be trying to do things right for the guest and then have the intestinal fortitude to stand up and be accountable publicly, visibly to your community and uh, learn, test and learn and get it right the next time. So we'll see where all that goes up there. Yeah, the Crystal Mountain experience is really interesting. And, and let me quickly issue a correction. Vail sold 2.1 million Epic Passes last year, not 1.2 million. So I got that backwards. So looking at the Crystal Mountain example, Crystal Mountain for the 2020 to 21 ski season was unlimited on the Icon Base Pass. That was a $699 product. It was actually quite a bit cheaper after the uh, various COVID and renewal discounts, et cetera. Last year, it was unlimited on the full Icon Pass. And next year, it is only seven days on the full icon pass, five on the base. The unlimited crystal pass started at $1,699 with a $100 discount for renewing pass holders. That is a $1,000 increase in the unlimited crystal season pass price in two seasons. Did you overcorrect now that you've had a month or two to process that? Was that too much or is it too early to say? Well, listen, I... (laughs) I want to back our people on the front lines up there trying to figure it out with their local community. And uh, I don't pretend to know all the ins and outs up there, but it was a it was a shockingly aggressive effort to try to change the paradigm up there and not be too crowded. And uh, it, you know, in terms of uh, of controversy, it certainly has created a lot. I think that what we really need to understand is how it really affects the market and demand and whether it helps with the uh, with crowding or not. And, you know, we won't know until we complete the experiment, which is to figure out what we, uh, is to do this next year and figure out how it works. And, uh, but I can tell you, we, we hear loudly and clearly all the way here in Denver, and Frank DeBerry hears it every day uh, about the disruption that it's created but, you know, it's, it was a bold effort to try to deal with a circumstance. It's a great example of a local leader saying, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a risk and figure out what to do about this. And, uh, you know, we'll see whether or not it has a positive impact or not. But you can bet that when we learn that we'll be changing it. Either we'll do more of it if it was the right thing to do for the market or we'll reverse course if it was the wrong thing and uh, time will tell. As, as you told me last year, the market will tell you if you're right. Uh, so Deer Valley, you moved Deer Valley off the Icon Base Pass onto the Icon Base Pass Plus. That is, in this case, a resort that you own. What was the? Why was it time to move Deer Valley off of the Icon Base? Well, for the same reason. So Deer Valley, and uh, I want to be careful about implying that somehow there's some universal algorithmic formula 
that determine what comfortable carrying capacity is because it's a function of the weather, when the crowd shows up. I mean, it's different every day. But the bottom line is that Deer Valley had too many people coming for uh, the capacity of the resort. So part of what we want to do is, you know, when we know more, we'll talk about this, but we, we'd like to dramatically expand Deer Valley, and we're working on that. So more capacity means that we can deal with the uh, taking better care of the crowds that we have. And, um, and the notion was strictly, you know, to try to adjust Deer Valley uh, by not having uh, so many people have access to it. So pricing and uh, the products that we changed were part of making adjustments for that. Whether or not that makes a difference or not, again, too soon to tell. We'll, we'll see. We, uh, we hope so. We hope it'll make a difference because unlike most resorts where you have a lot of build it and they will come risk, right? And Steamboat, we're building a lot of stuff. We hope we hope people come and enjoy it. <laughs> we really hope yeah. people enjoy it because it's like a couple hundred million dollars worth of uh, improvements. In, uh, but in Utah and in Deer Valley and, in, you know, there we share this with Dale, people are coming. And uh, the new airport, the community's growing and they're coming. There's no risk about whether or not you build it and they'll come. We haven't even built it and they're already coming. So we need to deal with that uh, reality and making sure that they have a good time when they get there. And that's to, uh, you know, make sure that we have a way to deal with crowds. So our changes in product this year were, uh, were attempts to deal with that, uh, Stuart. Whether or, not, whether or not those were big enough moves or not, we'll, we'll see next year. I know you just told me you're not ready to talk about it, but when you say you're looking to expand Deer Valley, are you talking about Mayflower or are you talking about something else? Mayflower. Okay. So, so it is you, Altera is an investor in that project, correct? No, no, uh-uh. no, that Mayflower is a, uh, is a company that was a Dutch company that owned all these uh, very complicated uh, mining claims. And that was bought by a company called Xtel owned by a fellow that I've gotten to know quite well, uh, Gary Barnett. And um, he's got some great plans for what can happen on the backside of the mountain. And uh, and this has been a public record. I'm not disclosing anything that's confidential. You know, we're discussing with him uh, about how we can do business together and potentially uh, expand the offerings of Deer Valley to provide more room for the people that are already coming there and the people that we know are going to come in the future. Um, what about Alta? What, what did the folks at Alta tell you about moving off the base pass to the base plus? You know, it was something that was very important to them. Um, that kind of goes back to the conversations among partners we were talking about before. And um, and what they tell me, and maybe more importantly, uh, what uh, um, David Mont- or Michael Mon tells uh, um, Matt Bowers, who kind of runs our partner relationships, are that between the changes that we uh, made to Base Plus, um, and they were they were one of the requesting uh, partners that wanted to do that, and what they're doing on the parking side, that they've got a better handle on their demand and crowds. So they're pleased with the direction that things are going. All right, let's talk about the Icon Session Pass here, Rusty. I, I think this is a product that has a lot of room for improvement. This is only the second year that Altera has offered it. It's nearly the same price as the Mountain Collective. You only get four days at the most. 
if you get the Mountain Collective, which is only a hundred and some dollars more, you get up to 46 days and there's no blackouts. So the Session Pass doesn't include a lot of your best resorts, doesn't include Jackson, Aspen, Snow Basin, Alta, but it's, but it's kind of pricey for what it is, especially compared to Epic's Day Pass products. I guess, how well has this product been received and how can you make it better? What are your ideas? Well, I'll tell you, my idea is to have a great head of marketing, and that's Eric Forsell. <laughs> and uh, he is, he's, he's great, very smart. If he'll answer your calls, he's so busy, he doesn't often answer mine. And, uh, and, I, I, and he'll be very informative on, uh, on the, the product. But, I, but I, I'll tell you that he would tell you that there's a lot more than meets the eye there. The product itself is important. But it's also a, uh, it's inexpensive, relatively inexpensive. You know, how well it competes with other products. I'll let others uh, discover that. Could it be different? Could it be better? So we could sell more of them? Yes. But one of the things that it does is it attracts a lot of people to Icon. And it's a gateway for a uh, kind of an online experience that often leads them to buy something else. And so on that basis, it's actually quite successful. It's not at all bait and switch. It's that, listen, here's a way to spend less money, but there's more restrictions on it. And then people take a look at that and then take a look at the value of the various, you know, icon, full icon and partial icon, you know, the base plus, the base, full icon. And that often leads them to uh, buying icon passes. So for us, for our purposes, it actually works quite well. But like everything else in our line of products and services, You'll see changes in it as the market tells us what it likes and we adjust to it. So speaking of Mountain Collective here, Altera had three resorts left on that product, Mammoth, Palisades, Tahoe, and Sugarbush. You pulled them off for next season. What was behind the decision to remove your last three owned resorts from Mountain Collective? Well, I, listen, I uh, the Mountain Collective folks are, you know, it comes out of Aspen. It's a great idea. And, and uh, I think it's still a great idea. I refer you back to my comments about not being a joiner. And it was like the biggest thing when I was running Mammoth. And, oh, my God, okay, we'll join it. We'll join it. Yeah. <laughs> Stop calling me. We'll join it. And, uh, you know, it was it was great for a while. And so for us, the product, I think the product's still quite good. But for us, it became confusing for our customers. And, uh, and so we decided to, uh, to pull out of it. But it's not a... It's not, not a negative commentary on the individuals involved with it or even the product. It just wasn't, it didn't go well with the rest of our products. And we like to control the narrative of that. And uh, so that's the reason why we pulled out. All right. As Icon Pass holders get access to two new U.S. partners this coming season, Sun Valley and Snow Basin. Both of those switched to Icon from the Epic Pass. What was the story there? How did they come to Icon? What did they tell you about why they wanted to make that switch? You know, uh, really very little, uh, other than the fact that, uh, you know, they'd been with uh, Epic for a while and they wanted to make a change. They liked what we did. And um, we were very happy to have them. Uh, Again, part of it in the, particularly with respect to Sun Valley, that allows us to have greater content in uh, the Northwest. So we were ecstatic that they wanted to to join ICON and become a partner. And... uh, and of course, there's incredible growth, as you and I both know, in Utah already going on. So being able to have more experiential content on the past was uh, was very exciting to us. 
And beyond that, there really wasn't a lot of comment about, okay, this is why we want to change. It was really more dealing with the fact that they did want to change and we wanted to uh, accommodate that. We had a relatively short period of time to do it and we're super happy to have them on board. Along with that announcement, you also announced that Chamonix in France, one of the great ski destinations in the world, would be joining Icon for next season. You've also signed in the last year Kitzbühel Austria and Dolomit Superski in Italy, and you had already signed Zermatt in Switzerland. Really incredible network, Rusty. That's the big four in Europe is those four countries. Have you gotten to the point where the Icon Pass is marketed in Europe? Is it now considered a European product as well, rather than just a a product for North Americans to take a ski adventure across the Atlantic? Again, I, you know, Eric Forcell and Matt Bowers can speak uh, more articulately on this, but it is, in my view, it's not really a, I mean, some people certainly think about it that way in Europe, but I wouldn't call it a European product. It's really designed currently for the North American market and to, you know, these are people that love the mountains, right? What do people that love the mountains do? They climb one or take a lift to the top of one. They see another one and they want to go to that one. Mm-hmm. They, they get there and they see another one and they want to go to the, the next one. <laughs> At some point, you're standing up on a mountain and you visualize Europe and you want to go there. And so it's really just us focusing on our primarily North American um, guests and giving them what they're asking for. Giving, uh, giving us what we want to do. You know, we're skiers too. And we think about where we want to go in Europe. And boy, do we have a great slate of opportunities, um, of resorts over there. So it's really focused on the North American market, but we do have aspirations to, uh, to have Icon step into European markets, have European partners over there. And, uh, and you know, at the right time and for the... Uh, the right relationship and uh, opportunity, the idea of making investments in European resorts, that's certainly in the cards for us in the future. Yeah, Vale, their last acquisition was to take a majority ownership in Andermatt Sedrun in Switzerland. Do you think that Altera would look to actually buy or take take a stake in a European resort in the future? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I'm completely jealous of, uh, about uh, Andermatt. I've been skiing Andermatt for a long time. I have a, really? a friend, Ben O'Nogger, who used to work for Mammoth and uh, has been in the ski business a long time. He grew up with the uh, Rusi brothers in, uh, in Andermatt. So I've known about the place for a long time. And, uh, and, I, and I know the Saviri family, who are the owners, uh, Egyptian family owners that have made tremendous investments in, um, in Andermatt in both expanding, connecting the mountain and building the Chetty Hotel. And uh, it's a wonderful place. And I, uh, I look forward to, <laughs> honestly, to, to skiing over there with my friends from Vail because it's a, it's a great resort. And I look forward to, uh, to Altera's expansion of our strategy there. First with partners, you know, these pillar partners in in the uh, in each country, and then uh, kind of filling in the gaps as we go along, focused on our North American guests in the beginning, but then our European uh, pass holders in the future. So uh, I think the future is bright for us in Europe. So you've you've signed, as I said, three new partners for next season. Are there going to be more partners added to the Icon Pass prior to the start of the 2022 to 23 ski season? I sure as heck hope so. I you know I'd like to have more friends, not fewer friends. So. 
Um, uh, nothing in particular that I could announce or that or that I'm hiding. Um, but we, we're making constant efforts in that regard, and uh, and I hope we land one or two before next year. I'm going to needle you a little more on Pennsylvania here, Rusty. We talked about Camelback last year, and you confirmed you had extensive conversations with them about potential partnerships. And KSL Capital, one of your parent companies, actually owns Camelback, and they also purchased Blue Mountain, which is only about 40 minutes away in Pennsylvania. If you if you zoom out, Vale bought Seven Springs, Laurel, Hidden Valley in Pennsylvania. They now own eight of the 22 public ski areas in Pennsylvania. They have a tremendous network. Icon has zero representation there. What will it take to get an Icon Pass presence in Pennsylvania on Blue and Camelback or somewhere else? You know, I, I'll I'll uh, sort of admit to uh, to my lack of knowledge in some ways. I mean, I I've skied in the East, and you know, still one of my top five powder days was in nineteen, I think ninety six at Stratton when the town closed because of. You know, the power lines all fell down. There was about 100 of us skiing the mountain for two days. Wow. Lower overhead powder. So that's my yeah. image of East Coast skiing, by the way. <laughs> uh, so I love it back there. I, th- You know, what we're, we, uh, without going to, into too much behind-the-scenes detail, we're very interested in Pennsylvania. We, uh, we know lots about and have learned recently a lot about uh, Camelback and Blue. I was very impressed with both for different reasons and understanding kind of the Philly market, um, you know, with respect to blue. And uh, so you'll, you'll, we're interested back there. You know, we're just trying to make the right steps at the right time and, and uh, do it in a way that allows us to execute well. So we don't get over our head. So stay tuned. I am really curious how those resorts ended up being owned by KSL uh, and run by KSL Resorts rather than Altera. Do you have any insight into why KSL Capital made that decision? KSL Resorts tends to run luxury resorts in tropical environments. And, and here, KSL Capital owns one of the great scary operators of the world, and they, they do not choose to put their new ski resorts under your management. Do you have any insight into why that was? Yes. <laughs> Can you tell us? No. <laughs> <laughs> Just telling you the truth. <laughs> What's that? I said, just telling you the truth. I mean, all right, all right. Uh, Eric, well, I, Eric Resnick, who runs KSL, is a close friend of mine, and uh, and uh, and you know, we're very close with KSL. And it just the the sort of overarching answer to that is that uh, is that you know, Altera needs to move at the right pace. And uh, there's opportunities out there. We can't take all the opportunities all at once, and KSL saw the significant opportunities in those two resorts, and they moved on it. And, uh, you know, we'll see where things go in the future. But as I said, we're very interested in Pennsylvania. How about the Midwest? You do have the two Boyne Mountains there in Michigan. Otherwise, Altera and the Icon Pass have no presence there. Vail has a really big presence now in the Midwest. They own 10 ski areas across the lower Midwest and uh, in Pennsylvania, or I'm sorry, in Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan. Do you have any thoughts on the Midwest as it pertains to the Icon Pass in the future? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, they all made a great move and uh, in one fell swoop, what, 16 resorts, I think it is? Some, some significant 17. number. Yeah. 17. And, uh, you know, that that's a, that's, a, that's a very big move. And again, you know, crawl, walk, run. We've been in business for five years. And the growth, as you pointed out through your questions and uh, and your comments in this interview and others, 
we've uh, we've grown a lot in five years, and uh, we're we want to continue to be uh, acquisitive and uh, and build for the future. But we also need to pace ourselves. So you know, there's the there'll be the right time for us to make moves in the Midwest. Not quite right now, but we're uh, we're certainly paying attention to what's going on there. Yeah, I think some of that pressure and the the urgency from the ski community just comes from the fact of how quickly Altera grew right out of the gate, right? You brought Mammoth together and Palisades Tahoe and Intrawest, and then you bought Solitude and Deer Valley and Crystal and Sugarbush. And the Sugarbush, and that, that all happened within about a year. And then Sugarbush, you bought that in November 2019. Then COVID hit, you know, five months later, kind of shut down all sales for a while. But now we've seen resorts start to move again. Seven Springs, Laurel, Hidden Valley, Big Snow in Michigan, Shawnee Peak, Boyne bought out in Maine, uh, Mission Ridge bought Blacktail in Montana, uh, some locals bought White Pass, Washington. There's, there's some other examples. Has the right opportunity just not come along, Rusty, or has Altera deliberately stepped back from buying ski areas while you improve the ones you have? Because you've, if you look at your projects, you have this mega gondola going in at Palisades Tahoe to connect the Alpine and Olympic size. And you have as you said, $200 million going into Steamboat. You just released this amazing master plan for Winter Park. So it, it, is, it, is it just not the right opportunity or are you just focusing resources elsewhere? It's really that we're focused on the resources and completing what we started already. And uh, we need to make sure that we do that. Um, and the other thing to remember, and I said it from the beginning, you know, we're going to have a new perspective with a new CEO, Jared Smith. And I think that'll be a real advantage. One of the things that uh, I've had the company focus on is, you know, listen, let's let's don't get too organized. Let's just move. Let's go. Yeah. And we did an awful lot over five years and uh, and survived, prospered through COVID and uh, things have come out quite well. And, and my admonition to myself first, but to the company has been, OK, let's let's make sure we're finishing what we're starting and uh, and, uh, you know, making sure that the new blingy idea doesn't get in the way of uh, executing well on the original good ideas. Now, with Jared coming on board, I think that there'll be a different perspective and he'll see things differently than I will. And that's that's another reason why this is the right time to change, because there are great opportunities out there and you're pointing out a number of them. It'll be good to have a new perspective on those. And I would see uh, I see exciting things happening uh going forward. And I'm sure he'll tell you about that when you interview him here soon. <laughs> All right, Rusty, two more quick questions for you here today. Well, one quick one and one, one more thoughtful one. The quick one is, is Altera bidding on J Peak? Do you have any interest in that resort? You know, I, I, I do actually, I do, we do, um, but it's complicated. It's the market up there is complicated. They have a lot of supply it's, you know, they're in the ski business and like the softball tournament business and the water park business. And, you know, it's a, it, it's a very unusual property that's, that has a lot of other sort of externalities embedded in it. So, yes, from a distance, but there's, we have no active engagement with them right now. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right. I, I think I've heard that they were down to the last two. So it sounds like you're not one of them. Uh, the last thing I want to get your thoughts on here today, Rusty, is at the NSAA convention, and I'm not sure if you had a chance to make it, but uh, uh, Rob Katz gave a speech. And the theme of the speech was 
uh, decrying what he called, quote, growth nimbyism, unquote. And that's really the tendency for skiers to complain when their own ski areas get too crowded. Just curious what your reaction was to that speech. I unfortunately, well, actually, fortunately, uh, I actually had my my oldest son, who now works for Altera, Michael. Uh, he and his wife had uh, my first grandchild. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, literally the day that I arrived there. Oh, so congratulations. Was, thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, it's a very cool thing being a grandfather. Yeah. Amazing. And, uh, so I was able to meet with the uh, Icon partners. We had a meeting set up. And I literally had to fly out right after that. And one of the re- reasons I went is because I was excited about getting back together with, you know, NSA in, in, um, in general and all the good work that Kelly Pollack and her team does for those events. I really like them. And, uh, and I wanted to hear Rob's speech. I, I didn't hear it, but I heard it uh, uh, recorded afterwards. And, and uh, you know, I, I think that, Skiers have a very proprietary-like interest in the resorts that they love. And along with that comes strong opinions. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, uh, they kind of feel like that's their resort and they want to make sure that there's enough room for them to ski. And if that means somebody else ought to move out of the way, they can be pretty vocal about that. That's not easy for the operator to deal with. Rob clearly had strong opinions about that. And, um, you know, I, it, it, it's all very complex. At the end of the day, we need to make sure that the experience is great. I'm repeating myself, but it bears repeating. The experience has to be great. And uh, the experience get de- it gets degraded if there's too many people on the hill. If there's too many people on the mountain consistently, then we need to do what's required to change. So it's not about, you know, how big the crowd should be or how small it should be. It's that people should have a good time on the mountains that they're paying to, uh, first of all, that they mostly own. Most of the land we operate on is the people's land, number one. And number two, they're paying to be there and we uh, owe it to them to provide a great experience. And in some areas, that means that we need to be able to control crowds and uh, we have yet to figure out how to do that well. I don't really harbor any resentment for the fact that people uh, get upset about that. Rob uh, obviously feels very strongly about it. I'm much more focused and we're more focused on figuring out what to do about it. Mm -hmm. How much of that explains the icon pass changes that we've seen with, with the, with the base pass and uh, the change in access at crystal and some of these other things. Is that, is that really your attempts to try to meter the crowds out however you can? Yeah, there. I mean, there's other on the margin. There's other reasons, but frankly, it's the primary reason. It's you know us trying us Altera Mountain Company trying to deal with crowds and you know the the history of the business. Right? Is okay. How do we best match up capacity, lifts, downhill run capacity with demand, and um, what's the best way to organize that? That's a never-ending battle of truth, justice, and the American way. We'll always have that. And uh, the companies that adjust to it the best will be the most successful. And the companies that, you know, uh, don't adjust to it or whine about it aren't going to be as successful. And we want to be the former, not the latter. So how much are you looking forward to not worrying about it and just getting in line, however long they are, and just skiing? I'll be so pissed off if I have to wait in line. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm just like everybody else, right? And uh, <laughs> All right. 
and honestly, I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, skiing. You know, getting back in shape. This five years of an office job. You know, I convinced myself for a while that this hip stand-up desk that I have is exercise. I can tell you by how fat I've gotten, it is not exercise. I'm looking forward to getting in shape and starting to ski again. And, uh, you know, it's, I'm not sure worry is the right word. I mean, my, my uh, you know, heart, soul, and brain is kind of in the business. My friends are there. So I'll always be thinking about it. And, uh, and I, uh, that's just part of my life. But I am looking forward to stepping aside, playing the, you know, my role on the, on the board as an investor and an owner and, uh, and doing what I got in the business to do in the first place. And that's to uh, go skiing, enjoy the mountains with my friends. And I'm super excited about uh, having time to do more of that going forward. Are you going to stay based at Mammoth? I don't, but I keep a place here in Denver. I love Denver. And um, I've got a place, a place in Los Angeles and then a place in Mammoth. So yeah, Mammoth is, Mammoth really is home, but Honestly, I'm, uh, you know, I'm like into the whole icon pass thing. So I want to, I got a, I've got a four wheel drive sprinter van that's got good insulation and heater. And I'm going to hit, I'm going to hit the road and hit as many of the resorts before I'm too old to do it anymore, uh, starting this winter. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, I think the uh, van life crowd is, it will be happy to hear that you're one of them. I, uh, I, I'm just happy to have a community to be part of. (laughs) Love it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Rusty. I, you know, I, I think I speak for a large part of the ski community when I say that, you know, your legacy will be uh, is one who introduced a great product and, and really brought a, a really great competitor into the ski industry that changed it and shaped it for the future in a way that's sustainable and interesting and exciting. So thank you very much for everything that you've done and congratulations on getting some time to, re- to step back and, and hopefully enjoy all these great mountains you've helped to build. Thanks very much, Stuart. It's been uh, been great talking to you again. That's Rusty Gregory, CEO of Altera Mountain Company. That was so good for so many reasons. Altera is not a perfect company. There isn't any such thing. But it's hard to imagine how they could have rolled this thing out any better than they did over the past five years. Some people go out of their way to avoid accepting blame. Rusty goes out of his way to avoid accepting credit. He's funny. He's like, hey man, I didn't even want this job. I'm giving you credit anyway, Rusty. It's been amazing to watch this thing roll out. And big respect to you and everyone else at Altera for staying focused on the skiing and on the skier despite all the other distractions. So thank you very much for that, Rusty. And thank you all for listening. June has been huge. Got one more headed your way. Jonathan Davis, general manager of Perfect North Indiana. He is a really smart guy. That one is already in the can and you will have it soon. Then we will have a conversation with Gore Mountain general manager, Bone Base. Look for that one in early July, followed by conversations with the leaders of Bogus Base in Idaho, Mulligan's Hollow, Michigan, and Mount Hood Meadows, Oregon, and many more. Remember, sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com to make sure you do not miss those. There is a free version of the newsletter, and I very much appreciate the folks who join that tier. There is also a paid version, and paid subscribers will get access to podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the Storm on Twitter and Instagram, 
at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.